There is, I think, that real responsibility to notice how we are using language and to recognize that it, it does, it is an instrument of power, that it, it does have the power to manipulate and to to change things that happen and to, to change how people see each other and how they relate to each other, even in their own families. Um, and so I think it's, it's really difficult to, to overstate that responsibility. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Journalist Bonnie Christian writes opinion pieces on foreign policy, religion, electoral politics, and more. Her column, The Lesser Kingdom, appears in print and online at Christianity Today. She's a fellow at Defense Priorities, a foreign policy think tank, and her work has been published at outlets including the New York Times, The Week, USA Today, CNN, Politico, Reason, and The Daily Beast. Her new book is Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. She joined me to talk about epistemology, virtue, intellectual honesty, and the ways the internet has broken everybody's brain. Bonnie Christian, I'm very glad to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you for making time for me. Yeah, thank you for having me. I am. Uh, I really enjoyed reading your new book, Untrustworthy. Um, and I want to start with this idea that we are in an epistemological crisis that is breaking our brains, polluting our politics, and corrupting Christian community, to borrow from your subtitle. Um, epistemology is a, a, a hard word. It's a hard word to say. Um, let's, let's just start there. What, what, is, what is epistemology? Sure. So epistemology is a branch of philosophy, and it concerns the study of knowledge itself. So it's it's interested in a lot of things like like what is knowledge and, and what is the difference between, say, knowledge and fact or knowledge and opinion or conjecture, um, these kinds of like delineations between between different kinds of information or beliefs that we can hold within our heads. Um, and, and so a lot of it is is about figuring out how do we say when we're justified uh, in in our beliefs, like like when is a belief supported, or or in some cases we might even claim proven. When is it simply something that we're asserting? Um, so epistemology asks those kinds of questions, and I think it's it's not something that most people are going to be thinking about on a daily basis. And I think under a lot of circumstances, it's not something that most people would ever really have to think about. You know, if you're not an mm-hmm. academic philosopher, you're probably not talking about epistemology on a day to day basis. But in our context where there is so much confusion around what is knowable and what is true and who is trustworthy, I do think that epistemology becomes something that's important for a lot more of us because of the way that we are so constantly taking in information and mm-hmm. and assessing, or in many cases, not really assessing truth claims just all day long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you You reference a study from 2019 um study was called the perception gap and one of the most alarming things about that that study to me was or not just to me to anybody who who knows anything about it is that the more you the more well informed you are the more likely you are 
to to view people who oppose you as insane or evil or or sort of this caricature. Um, there's there's something about you know the the information we're receiving is is making us dumber in some important ways. Yeah, I mean, I I think the it really highlights that study really highlights how how distorting it is to engage in sort of the public sphere and politics, especially exclusively or or overwhelmingly through taking in information, especially online, um, but taking it in through media and getting your idea of what a Republican is like or what a Democrat is like from like, the crazy people who are yelling at you on Twitter, as opposed to you know, your neighbor down the street or someone who goes to church with you who is across the party line, but really not that different from you. And so, uh, yeah, we, we like, I think a lot of us like to think of ourselves as so well-informed. Like I keep up with the news. I know what's going on. I have a good idea of what the other side is like, but yeah, it was very striking that what this study found was that the, the more often people were consuming political media, the more caricatured their idea of their political opponents was. Um. And if you would help me make that close the gap between that idea and epistemology, right? How is that an, an epistemological matter? Yeah, well, so I think it's part of a sort of a, a larger um, information environment that we have, which is very chaotic, very confusing, and crucially very overwhelming. So over the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years with the rise of 24-hour cable news, um, of modern talk radio, of, of course, the internet and social media, we've enormously and very rapidly increased the amount of information we're taking in. And I think quantity, quality is an important aspect of it, but quantity is a really important aspect mm -hmm. of it as well. There's yeah. just so much of it. And so what I would argue is that it's... Once you start taking in information and encountering information on that scale, it becomes much more difficult to be epistemically responsible, to be actually like interrogating the, the truth claims that you're encountering. And so for, for a study like that, what's happening is, you know, you're, you're consuming all this information about what your political opponents believe all day long and, and how bad their motives must be because like no good and, and reasonable person could sincerely believe something like that. Um, and it, it's just coming at you over and over and over. And it starts to, I think, outweigh those more ordinary, normal, inter real life human interactions that you should be having that yeah. ideally would be, would be balancing some of that out and reminding you that people who disagree with you politically are not just that one opinion that you disagree with. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned it at one point, the rise of yard signs. Mm. Um, and it, it, I, it never occurred to me until, until you mentioned it, but yard signs, political yard signs are in some ways, a way of introducing the dynamics of social media, the worst dynamics of social media into our everyday neighborhood experience. Mm -hmm. Right. I think you said something like, I live in a nice neighborhood. I don't want it to be more like Twitter. So this this opportunity to signal my position, my virtue, my whatever. Um and I mean it's you know the yard sign more or less by definition is a signaling mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
I, I'd never thought about the extent to which that is sort of a, um, as you said, introducing the the social dynamics of Twitter into the real world, and it's it's uh, that's it's kind of nasty when you think of it in those terms. Yeah, it's been interesting. So since I that that portion of the book drew on an article I'd written about the subject um, for uh, an outlet where I used to work the week, mm-hmm. and when I wrote it, I lived in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And our neighborhood was deep, deep blue, just like 95, 97% Democratic. And so because there was so much political uniformity, the yard signs were all very consistent. You know, they were all the same. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, if you lived there, you could assume what your neighbor's politics would be. And so I think in that context, you know, people were using them to to send those signals to sort of draw those boundaries, announce themselves as a certain good type of people, but they could do so and not really expect any like controversy or, or, mm-hmm. or conflict to come of that. And so since then we've moved to Pennsylvania, to Pittsburgh, which mm-hmm. is much more purple. Um, mm-hmm. And so here the, there's not as many yard signs mm-hmm. and the yard signs that are there are, are much more mixed in content. And it's been interesting, like, moving here thinking about you know meeting neighbors and yeah. like to walk up to a house with a sign announcing i don't think like you and maybe i don't super like people who think like you like that that makes it much harder to meet neighbors when it's already hard to meet neighbors um <laughs> and it's so it's been interesting to see like there are fewer signs here and i think part of it is because you have to be maybe a little bit more hardcore about it to be willing to so announce your differences when you know that there are people who have differences mm-hmm. in it around you, um, which of course makes it even more of an interesting prospect when someone has gone, decided I'm going to go that far and, and put this out <laughs> yeah. in my yard. Yeah. Well, uh, I, now I don't remember the, the terminology you use in your book, but but our um, so much of our political identity is defined these days by what we disapprove of rather than what we mm-hmm. approve of. And and so to, to, to put a yard sign is not just to say, here's what I believe, but to imply, or it, it's easy for somebody seeing that sign to assume that what you really mean is you don't like mm-hmm. certain people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially I, the, the classic in this house, we believe sign, which was the one that was overwhelming uh, in our, our Minnesota neighborhood. You know, it's it's all phrased in like very. It's not just I support this guy for this election. It's like big moral principles that are mm-hmm. sort of timeless. And if you don't agree with everything on the sign, like, mm, do they want to be friends with you? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you mean by as you said, uh, epistemology is a pretty academic term, mm-hmm. and the more you explain what epistemology is in detail, the more daunting it becomes, frankly. Um, And yet, thankfully you have a chapter called uh, practical epistemology. Um, Basically, you know, a way of thinking about epistemology where it's not just invisible, but it's also is, is something that can be a sort of a working epistemology. So can we talk about that? Like, what do you mean by a practical epistemology, and how might um, how might we practice a, a practical? Epistemology? Sure. Yeah. So, a lot of modern academic epistemology is very technical and and 
very like intricately logical and they do sort of like little I almost want to call it like a word problem like from from elementary school math where it's like a little scenario and like if this if you're in this scenario are you justified in claiming you have knowledge and let's tease out why or why not and I think you know nothing against that that can be interesting for a lot of people but that's not super helpful for when you're sitting down and you're looking at something on the internet and thinking is this real how do I know if this is real or not Mm. um and so a lot of what I'm interested in doing is actually going back to an older model of epistemology, which is that if you go back towards especially like um, the medieval and, and early Christian eras, when they're doing sort of like early epistemology, and I, I probably should know, I don't actually know how old the word is, um, but when they're doing epistemology in, in prior centuries, a lot of it is very much concerned with virtue. It's it's not really about mm. uh, the knowledge so much as it is about you as the knower. What kind of knower will you be? Will you be coming to information, you know, really flippantly or carelessly, um, looking just for bits of of fact or um, data that support what you already want to say, or are you, you know, trying to come to this to your study with with intellectual honesty and and with a studious mindset and this sort of thing. Uh, and so, the and that's something you know that that anyone can can cultivate. Any of us can cultivate intellectual virtues. Um, that you don't have to be an academic philosopher to be interested in stuff like that. And so, a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about at the end of the book in that chapter and in the one that follows, which is also at that more practical bent, is about thinking how do we develop um, intellectual virtues and how do we develop a a balance between recognizing that there is objective truth to be known and Mm -hmm. God did make us capable of knowing it, um, capable of learning, capable of communicating to one another, while also recognizing the very real limits in our ability to do that well in any given moment, um, you know, anything from just lacking informational context to like your last meal is not sitting well and you can't process <laughs> the book you're yeah. reading. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me a, a, a big part of that, of that kind of virtue is a willingness to say, I will conform my self, my life, my thinking to a reality that I didn't invent, mm. rather than using language and ideas and uh, facts loosely defined as a way of solidifying my position or exerting power over other people or, um, you know, whatever. I mean, th- that idea of a reality that I didn't create mm-hmm. and that I have some accountability to, even if I can't fully grasp it, Seems like a pretty helpful place to to start or live or something. Well, and I think that you know, particularly online and the age of social media, the way that everything is so gamified and designed to mm-hmm. encourage, you know, acquisition of followers and acquisition of attention, all of that, and particularly once you get into like a political space, all of it is so designed to make you want to just focus on growing and winning and accumulating uh, and and none of that is you know none of that encourages any sort of accountability to some um greater truth than just the point you're trying to score against someone who who insulted you online and so this is why you know to go back to the very beginning of our conversation under a lot of circumstances most people do not have to think about epistemology but 
the way that we have chosen to live, I think that we do. Yeah. Well, I, I do think, uh, I, well, I, I remember when I was in graduate school, you know, in the early to mid 90s and was, you know, having to read Derrida and Michelle Foucault and those kinds of things. This was this was shocking stuff. This These ideas, I mean, shocking to me, these ideas of, of uh, you know, there's no there's no real meaning that 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 uh, language is just a way of exerting power and positioning yourself. And that kind of thing. it's all shocking stuff. And now it seems like people's grandmothers are posting that kind of stuff all the time. I mean, you know, assessing truth claims of people they disagree with in terms of well, this is just to, they don't necessarily use the the they don't exactly sound like Jacques Derrida, but they kind of do. I mean, this mm-hmm. idea that that. No, no particular interest in what is actually true, but rather how can we, um, again, exert power? How, how can my team win? Yeah, or a lot of times I think you see sort of like a a, a resignation about it, uh, like, you know, mm. well, we, we, we'll never know anyway, so I'm just mm. going to go with this because this yeah, sounds yeah. right to me. And that's almost more depressing because you, you you're combining like i'm gonna pick what's good for my team mm-hmm. with at the same time just totally dispensing with any pretense of even like trying to find out what might be true yeah so what is the the this is a podcast by the way for writers uh mm-hmm. are, are we are interested in questions of uh writing and creative work i shouldn't say it's for writers but we a lot of a lot of writers i hope listen uh what what is the writer's responsibility in, in these regards, I mean, knowing that that people perhaps, you know, take the position of, I guess we'll never know. So we might as well just pick some facts that work for for our our team. Yeah, well, so I there's a early on in the book, I, I quote a passage from uh, Dorothy Sayers, mm-hmm. which she's talking about uh, language as, as a, a tool of power. Uh, and as a, a tool that most of us are not really trained to use, and she's talking about it as like a a, a skill. You know, I think it, as I've, I've noted when I have used this quote in other places, like it, it does sound very elitist to say like not everyone knows how to use words well, mm-hmm. but that is true. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's something anyone can learn, but it's not something we're all born knowing. And so I think for people who are writing or or otherwise like creating art, putting content out into the world to use a terrible phrase um and to some degree that's like a position anyone can be in now right but especially for people who are doing it full-time and professionally there is i think that real responsibility to notice how we are using language and to recognize that it it does it is an instrument of power that it it does uh have the power to manipulate and to Mm -hmm. um to change things that happen and to to change how people see each other and how they relate to each other, even within their own families. Um, and so I think it's it's really difficult to to overstate that responsibility. Uh, it's a responsibility, I think, that sort of the average person posting up on Facebook all the time, sharing their political articles that they come across. Um, I don't know how much they really think about that as like a, you know, that they have this a, a responsibility to take care in what they're doing. And to some extent, it's understandable that that might not be something the average like grandma 
uh, Facebooking isn't thinking about, but certainly as, as writers, it is something that we should be thinking about quite a lot. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, there, there are a couple of topics that, that come to mind when you mention these things. Um, one is, as you said, words have power. And, and I think we, it's helpful to do some thinking if, you, if you're going to, to write about the distinction between realities that we can make, that there are realities that we can make through language, right? We, mm-hmm. we can change people's inner landscapes through language. And then there are other realities that we can't make. Through. Like there, there are realities that, that we didn't make, <laughs> that no human being made. And uh, it's one thing to depict realities that we didn't make um, and to align ourselves and help others to align with realities that we didn't make. And then it's another thing to use language to make new realities, social realities, cultural realities. Um, I don't, I mean, I haven't thought through all the distinctions between those two things and, and how we, I mean, I, I remember, I think it was um, uh, Joseph Pieper who remarked that self-interest is the great enemy of reality. Right. Mm. It, uh, we we have lots of ways of avoiding reality and for the sake of our own self-interest, our perceived self-interest, which we're not always very good at knowing what our actual self-interest is. Um, that wasn't a question, was it? That was just <laughs> <laughs> No, that's um well, I have a response to it, even if it's not a question. Excellent. So um in the i have a chapter in the book about uh conspiracism like it's a, mm. a mindset that's prone towards very suspicious thinking uh and for part of that chapter i interviewed a handful of pastors who had, had encountered this in their churches yeah. and one of the things that one of the pastors commented was that you know sometimes when he's in the right relational context with someone who's really gotten deep into this mindset um, and you know, usually it takes quite a long time to get there, but at, sometimes he reaches a point where he can say, like, is this bearing good fruit in your life? Mm. And if they can be honest with themselves, they can usually recognize, no, it's not bearing yeah. good fruit. Like it's tearing up my relationships. It's, it's making me a more unpleasant person. It's making me, you know, preoccupied with things that I can't do anything about. And I think that same question is always going to be apt for, you know, assessing our own writing output um Mm. like from the mindset of someone who's like a reader if someone is reading all of my work is that going to bear good fruits in their life Mm. and if the answer is no then you know we've we've gotten ourselves in a a pretty pretty rough position yeah there okay that 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 actually is a, a helpful rubric for thinking about insofar as i can create realities Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, you know, not big R reality, but mm-hmm. there are realities I can create through through language. Are those realities that I uh, that are that are moving the world or my little yeah, world? Yeah, if you know, if someone is reading everything I write, are they coming away angrier? Are they coming away, mm-hmm. you know, embittered? Are they coming away uh, caring more or less about? <clears throat> excuse me, about figuring out what is true. And I think those are, are questions we can. Probably again, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, give a, a pretty reasonable answer to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing that you were you were talking a minute ago, another uh, set of categories that, that seemed interesting and helpful 
what you talk about in your book is um, somehow we've got to a place where we're both gullible and cynical, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is sort of the worst of all possible uh, uh, worlds when it comes to to knowledge. You know that, that we're first to be both gullible, you know, ready to believe anything that makes the other team look bad or makes my team look good. Um, and yet, yet cynical. Um, yeah, that that combination comes from a, a Hannah Arendt quote, um, oh, where yeah. she talks about people reaching a point where they will, at the same time, believe everything and nothing, think that everything was possible and nothing was true. And when I read that, it was so recognizable for yeah. you know people's responses to like news reports in recent years, where you know it, it, some 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 perfectly accurate report will come out, you know, just like standard reporting. So-and-so said this, you know, they're going to pass this law, whatever. And it's like, I don't, I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then some crazy, completely made up story will make the rounds on social media. It's like, well, it's possible. You can't prove that it didn't happen. (laughs) Um, That combination. uh, And, you know, it's, it's all very much dependent on like who, who is making the claim about what happened? What do I want to be true? Um, mm-hmm. And it, we we tend to think of like gullibility and cynicism as these these two opposite things, but it really does seem that in in many cases we are are starting to to combine them in the worst way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you propose a thought experiment that I found very. I don't know if it was supposed to be funny. I thought it was funny. <laughs> um, but uh, you said, imagine think if you think about the 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 number of news articles that you know we share around it thanks to social media the frictionlessness of social media um and you say imagine if if in 1995 you wanted to share that many articles with all your friends what that would involve and you said you know, you'd, you'd read the newspaper you'd clip out the interesting articles you would then take them to the someplace to copy them. Then you put them in an envelope and you put stamps and you address them to a hundred people and send them out. And then the next day you do it all over again. Um, and, you know, just not many years ago to do that would make you an absolute crank. Oh yeah. I mean, I remember sometimes like someone would send me, just me personally, like one newspaper clipping. And I'm like, what is going, why would you send me a piece of the newspaper? Like, can you, <laughs> like, this is weird. Can you not? Yeah. Um, and now we do it all day long to everyone we know. Yeah. Um, can you say more about that? I, that it's, <laughs> I mean, that, that seems, it seems really significant. I can't quite put my finger on what's so significant about it, except again, it used to be, you'd have to be an insane person to do yeah. that. Clipping newspapers was strange. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so of course the the technology difference does matter and the time mm-hmm. that it takes you to do that does matter. Like these are not identical. Mm-hmm. But I think that there is actually more similarity than we want to admit and we can't just wave it all away and say, well, because it only takes me 5 minutes instead of, you know, 3 or 4 hours, mm-hmm. it's fine and I can do it. Um there there's just something a little off as there always was about all of us setting up ourselves up as like these little mini town criers where <laughs> we're not content to just let the media, you know, publish these stories and, 
you know, maybe you chat about it a little bit at work, but like this feeling that we have to be the distributors of this information also, and that we're somehow helping by doing that. Um, yeah, it's it's just a, a very rapid and very strange shift to me, I think, that that as a society, we would have all sort of decided it is now a good and normal thing for me to essentially clip newspapers all day, every day um, and, and ask other people to read them. Um, I think that there, you know, maybe we never were able to sort of articulate a reason why we would call someone who did that a crank, but I think that that was not a fundamentally wrong instinct. Uh-huh. And now we are, you know, by that standard, a, a society of cranks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've often thought about the the dangers of frictionlessness that mm-hmm. the internet offers. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- when I first started hearing about blogs and how easy it was to do a blog, um, I thought about, and actually when I started a blog briefly in 2010 or whatever it was, I started thinking about the, um, that scene or the, 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 the fact of, um, the great divorce that in hell, if you wanted a new house, you just think mm-hmm. a new house. You don't have to go to the trouble of actually mm-hmm. building a house, paying for a house. You just think it, which sounds like a dream come true, except that if you had a conflict with your neighbor, instead of working out with your neighbor, you just think yourself a new house. And that frictionlessness was part of the punishment or the self-punishment, really, mm-hmm. of hell in in Lewis's um, vision mm-hmm. um, in the great divorce. And it led to, oddly enough, this weird isolation, right? Be- because I don't have to deal with the friction of the, the social friction of living with people. I just think myself a new house and, and then, you know, hell turns into this big donut of everybody leaving the center and moving out. And, um, and when Facebook and Twitter came along, it felt like this was going to be, you know, this frictionlessness was going to be a social, a way to, to make society better. And yeah, we thought it was going to be, you know, make, make new friends and uh, be a better citizen and all of this sort of thing. I will say, I do know a little more about people I went to high school than I would have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not opposed to the internet. I use the internet all day long for Mm -hmm. my job. I, I couldn't, wouldn't have my career without the internet. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, it's it's like a sharp knife. It it has real uses, but it is very dangerous. And I think we we sort of rush headlong into this thing without really taking seriously the idea that, you know, we talked early on about like stranger danger and don't put your real name online. That wasn't actually the risk. Like the risk was not abduction. The risk was that, you know, your whole attention and uh day is consumed by this it, it was not like our bodies were not stolen but our our brains were and our time was yeah. um, and i think we just sort of ran into this and thought it'll be fine and you know re- we reaped many benefits but now we have this increasingly frictionless situation there's just so few limits and it is directly counter in many cases to sort of the whole model of how like Facebook and Twitter and the like, how they make their money to introduce friction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
this is why I, in the book, keep coming back to virtue because I, I do not think that we can sort of wait around for, you know, Twitter's going to introduce some big fix that's going to force me to behave myself on there because they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, you know, what we can change is how we are behaving in these spaces. How do you behave better when your mind, your brain has been rewired by these things? I mean, a lot of it. And so the the chapter directly after the, the practical epistemology chapters is all about habits and assessing, mm-hmm. like, how am I using my time? How am I directing my attention? Um, you know, I think for those of us who are very online and who have grown up, you know, um, you know, my generation, I, I didn't have the internet in high school, but I've had the internet since college. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for adults who've had a large portion of their working lives with the internet and especially younger people, I don't think this is something that's, that we're ever going to be able to stop paying attention to and, and sort of constantly reorienting our habits so that we are still able to say, sit down and, and read a book and not just mm-hmm. have, you know, without picking up our phones in between every chapter section. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of it is about being very deliberate about our habits and, and making spaces in our, like making our brains capable of building those virtues. Like you can't just sit down and be like, I'm going to be virtuous now. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it does not work that way, <laughs> whether here or anywhere, but we can deter, like we can be more careful with our, our habits and our, where we're putting our attention and at least create opportunities for those virtues to develop. And so a lot of that is about time use. A lot of it is about what we're reading and watching. Um, and, and none of that is easy, but I, I, the one more hopeful thing I think is that there is increasing recognition that something is wrong here. And mm-hmm. maybe for those of us who are aware of that, even if it's something that we have to pay attention to, even if our brains are always a little bit broken for the rest of our lives, at least we do go into this with the next generation, with our children and grandchildren, um, much better informed than our parents could have been, you know, mm-hmm. because we've, we've experienced what it's like to have our, our, our brains messed up by the internet and have a, mm-hmm. um, at least greater knowledge of how to avoid that. Uh, Do you expect for, uh, our brains to be broken for the rest of our lives? I think there's a lot we can do. I would sort of be surprised if it ever, if we ever went back to having a pre-internet brain. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, I, I don't know if that's possible. Maybe if maybe if you can go off grid, yeah. <laughs> maybe after fifteen twenty years of that, you'll you'll go back to it. Um, but I mean, you know, we we know that brains remain like somewhat plastic in adulthood, and and as and so I think changes can be made. But at this, but that also means that I think it literally our our physical brains have have been changed by how we consume information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely tell a difference in the way my brain works. I mean, I, you know, I was, I was good and grown, had several kids before the, you know, the internet. Mm-hmm. I spent much time on the internet and, uh, I've, I'm not, you know, I, I can definitely tell a difference in the way my brain works. Yeah. I mean, not it's something that I, it's something that I think about, you know, like my habits and attention use and attention span. It's something that I think about certainly weekly if not daily like mm-hmm. a lot it's the phone is always there it's always got new stuff on it 
Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I certainly still read books and, and read them in their entirety and can read them at long stretches, you know, undisturbed. But when I yeah. think about the way I read in high school and some of that is, you know, like I have different responsibilities now, but some of it yeah. is definitely my brain. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you know, my wife state, you know, she doesn't spend much time at all on social, almost no time on social media. And, um, but she'll come home from work. Um, and I'll tell her, I tell her, you know, about a news story. So, so tell me more about that. And I never realized I didn't read that news story. I only read a headline, you know, <laughs> I saw the headline. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Okay. I, I want to, this, this is now just, I'm completely saying change the subject. This is not a segue, okay. but I want to talk about something else from, from your book before we run out of time. And that is this the prayer this prayer of Aquinas that you um, prayed every day as you were writing this book, um, and uh, hopefully you have it at hand or you maybe it's mm-hmm. or maybe it's in your brain if you prayed it every day. I don't know. It got close. I don't. I don't think I have it quite memorized. Um, yeah, I, but there's always like one line in the middle that it, that throws <laughs> me off. <laughs> well, tell me about that. Tell me about that that prayer and and why and why and how it shaped your your work. Yeah. So it's called a prayer for students. And I believe that the version that I have is certainly a modern translation and it might be, um, I think it's part of some larger piece of writing of his, but, you know, basically he, he, he prays to God to, um, you know, sort of address while he's studying to, to his, he calls it the double darkness of sin and ignorance. Mm. Um, and so, you know, to as he's coming to, in, in many cases, the biblical text or whatever else he's studying, to to sort of let him move past not only um, sort of those like innocent lapses of, of ignorance, but also mm. sin, which I think goes to a lot of what we've been talking about, of, you know, looking for what you want instead of what's actually there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also very, just a very practical prayer. You know, he asks for things like your attentive memory and the ability to grasp things correctly and fundamentally and for help in like finishing his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I came across it. I forget exactly at what point um, when I was writing, but I started praying it every day, particularly uh, I finished the book in a, a sort of a, a several week sprint where I was doing it full time all day, every day particularly in that time I was praying it daily. Um, and I, I was drawn to it just by how, how clearly like a, a writer's prayer it was. Mm-hmm. And also by how much, um, you know, there, you're not like feeling it every day. Like there, yeah. there are days when, um, you know, I didn't particularly want to pray before I started writing or just sort of felt out of it or, or, um, you know, like I was not coming to um, the work at my best. And so at that point, it was sort of uh, a way to set my intentions for the day as I, like in my best moments, wanted them to be, mm-hmm. even if in, in that moment, they weren't necessarily quite that good. Yeah. Um, and it's not, obviously, it's not like a, it's not magic, right? Like you can't uh-huh. just say the words and then you are that kind of person. But um yeah, again, returning to the themes of, of habit to help you f- build virtue. Mm-hmm. That was at least my my hope and my intent. Yeah. yeah. All, right. All right. Well, will you tell me some writers who make you want to write, Bonnie? Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that since you sent that question over. Um, and I think I have like sort of two 
categories of answers. So one I would say is writers whose work is tends to be very brief and very not dumbed down, but simple um, Uh and with sort of a timeless Uh feel. I think some of C.S. Lewis's stuff gets into this uh, range. And I would also say, um, while I was researching this book, I read a book uh, by a guy named Jonathan Rausch called Kindly Inquisitors. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the subtitle is The New Attack on Free Thought, something like that. Mm -hmm. And he wrote it in the 1990s. um, But it was it was very striking how of the moment it felt like Mm -hmm. if, if you sort of took out a few specific examples he gave, it could have been written anytime almost in the last century and so that kind of writing where it it just seems like so so broadly apt and again not um not ever stupid but accessible and and uh with a real staying power i think Mm -hmm. that that many books do not have um so that's one and then the other category i'd point to is i for my reading for pleasure i tend to read a lot of uh mystery novels um really? yeah it's, it's my thing <laughs> I, uh-huh. I i would say probably uh, dorothy sayers is uh-huh. would be my top pick for that but um right now i'm reading some pd james and obviously the work i do is very very different i don't really think i could ever write fiction but um mm-hmm. but yeah that you know a really well done especially mystery novel has that that draw that makes you want mm-hmm. to, to come back to it and get to the end and find out uh, what, what happened. Um, and so I, I don't exactly know if I could characterize what that same effect looks like in nonfiction argued opinion, yeah, but, right. um, but that yeah. quality certainly of, of just um, like a magnetic attraction almost. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, that's, it's always fun to, to hear uh, the, the right when writers do one kind of work and they're they're in, inspired and energized by another kind of work that they're never mm. going to do, you know. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of writers yeah, who will I never write a song, but it's the songwriters who make them want to want to go write. Mm. You know, interesting. Yeah. Well, Bonnie Christian, thank you so much. Uh, I, I so appreciate your insights uh, in this book. Uh, in so many places, uh, you're saying things that I kind of knew and felt but didn't have the words for and mm-hmm. uh, and so it was really helpful to me to to read your book and and borrow your categories and I'll be I'll be using your categories some of which were yours as much you're borrowing from somebody else obviously uh for years to come so thank you for that and thanks for being here well yeah thank you it was a great conversation the habit podcast is brought to you by the rabbit room where art nourishes community and community nourishes art To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.